Greetings all and welcome back to the Everyday Hope Podcast. It's good to be with you. So, you know how people say that Christmas starts earlier every year? Used to be that stores had Christmas stuff out around Thanksgiving weekend, then it was Halloween. Now it seems like they're rolling it out after Labor Day. Well, I had one of those this week on Hallmark. It seems that Christmas in July started in June. I know, right? Pretty soon Christmas is going to start during Christmas of the previous year. And then the universe will collapse in on itself. All right, let's get serious. So I want to start this episode with a question. Sometimes you hear people ask, do you believe in God? But I want to ask a different question. Why do you believe in God? Now, there could be lots of answers. I mean, you know, maybe you had a personal experience of God, or maybe your parents took you to church as a kid and you inherited your faith. But that's not really what I'm looking for. I'm talking about your motivation for faith. You see, a lot of people out there that that might say they know there's a God, but they don't actually follow him, right? I mean, they don't worship, they don't follow his rules, they don't talk to him. I guess what I'm getting at is there's a difference between believing that God exists and choosing to follow him. So I'm really interested in that second piece, faith as an act of choosing to follow God, you know, live in a certain way. So I guess what I'm asking is, why do you choose faith in the God you know to be real? Now, maybe you have a pat answer. It's one you keep ready just in case anybody ever asks. And maybe you've thought about it and have a real answer. Or maybe you have no answer and aren't afraid to admit it. And maybe you sincerely believe that God is real and active, but you can't say why you choose to follow him. Or maybe you believe that the knowledge of his existence is all the reason you need. That's okay too. I'm not saying that any of these answers is wrong. But the book of Job is one of those books that's more about the questions, right? And through this, we want to have the courage to ask those questions, even if it takes us some time to to work out our answers, okay? All right, so look, many years ago, I spent a couple weeks in Omaha with an old friend who had just received a lower bowel transplant. I'd never even heard of that before. And in the words of her surgeon, they took the small intestine out of one body, threw it in a bucket, kicked it around for a few hours, and then put it inside my friend. All this happened because 19 years earlier, she had developed a rare case of mono that paralyzed most of her lower digestive tract. At the age of 20, her life was turned upside down, and it was never the same after that. She battled to stay alive, spending more time in the hospital than out of it. In fact, when she was first diagnosed and she went into the hospital for the first time, she actually went blind temporarily. But her vision isn't all she lost. Over the years, she lost her colon, small intestine, most of her large intestine, and she'd been kept alive by feeding tubes and had been slowly deteriorating over the course of that 19 years. And the whole situation left me with that, with that why question, you know, why would something like this happen, right? Was it something she did? Was it a sin of some kind or was it caused by the sinful act of someone else? Did God afflict her with this disease? And maybe he didn't cause it, but he certainly didn't prevent it. Why? Why didn't he prevent it? And when I asked him to heal her, to make this transplant successful, his answer was no. So what was the cause of, or the reason for her suffering? You know, when they encountered a man born blind, the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned to cause the situation, the man or his parents? And Jesus said, you guys don't get it. Um, Well, what he actually said was, Neither this man nor his 
parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. <sighs> oh, what the heck does that even mean? So the whole situation, you know, spending time with my friend all those years ago, made me think about the story of Job. You know, Job was a good guy, a righteous and upright man who believed in God. But then all kinds of things happened to him, bad things. He lost all his stuff, lost his family, lost his health. He was sitting on an ash pile outside the city, scraping his boils with a broken piece of pottery. And his friends came to cheer him up by telling him he was a sinner and needed to repent. It really doesn't get much worse than that. And so people often think the book of Job is a story about patience in the face of extreme suffering. One problem though, that kind of reading just isn't good enough for someone who is really suffering. Keep a stiff upper lip and everything happens for a reason. Aren't things I could have told my friend and kept my self-respect. I needed something better. I needed something more. She needed something more. I needed to speak to her in a way that could have brought real comfort, not artificial cheerleading. My problem with just saying that the story of Job is about faith under pressure and leaving it at that is that there are too many unanswered questions. It's not simply black and white. Take a look at Job chapter 1. In the very first verse, the author tells us flat out that Job is blameless and upright. And in verse 8, we hear God say that Job is blameless and upright. We have no doubt about the character of Job. He's a righteous man. Even God thinks so. Now, we often ask why bad things happen to good people. But we also often wonder how good those people really are. You know what I mean? I mean, no one's a really good person, right? Our best is like filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that. So when we hear about people who are suffering, we often realize that they're just sinners and they've made some bad decisions and we can't be all that surprised that something bad has happened. And maybe that helps us, I don't know, somehow justify their suffering. But we can't play that game with Job. Right? The narrator's taken that out. We hear God's evaluation of Job. He is a blameless and upright man. But then God allows him to suffer. Hasatan questions Job's righteousness and God allows him to suffer. We don't have to wonder about Job's righteousness and we don't have to wonder about God's role in Job's suffering. The author tells us straight out, God allowed it. He turned righteous Job over to suffering. So the story has to be about more than the suffering of sinners. It has to be about something more serious and more profound, right? And at least I hope it is. What about my friend? Did God turn her over to suffering too? Is God to blame for all the evil she endured? Did she deserve to suffer and die the way she did? Or like Job, was she an innocent victim? If she was not fully innocent, what could she have done to deserve that much suffering? I mean, surely the punishment didn't fit the crime. And how do you comfort someone who is suffering like that? What do you say to make them feel better? Do I simply quote Romans 28 to her and then go on my merry way? In his book, God Works the Night Shift, Ron Mel says this. Frankly, I don't want to hear that verse when I'm in pain. I don't want to hear that verse when I'm grieving. I don't want to hear that verse when circumstances pull the rug out from under me and leave me dazed and disoriented on my backside. And you know what? I get what he's saying. So let me ask another question. What if the book of Job is not merely about suffering? What if it's not just about the suffering man in the story? What if the book of Job isn't about whether or not Job will remain faithful? But what if it's about the possibility of remaining faithful? Oh, well, that's interesting. 
What if the book of Job is about the possibility of a human being remaining faithful in the face of intense suffering, even suffering they don't deserve? Now, that's a dilemma I think it's worth tackling in this book. So, if we're going to take that on, our job begins with, you guessed it, two more questions. These two questions are vitally important to understanding the book of Job, so, so I really want to hammer on these. They're asked in the two realms in which this story takes place, okay? The first realm is heaven, and the second realm is earth. In the first realm, we are given a glimpse of the divine counsel in heaven over which God presides and to which Hasatan comes as an expected member of that council. In the second realm, we see a righteous man lose everything and suffer intensely. The first question is asked during the scenes in heaven when the host of heavenly beings comes to present themselves before God. Hasatan shows up from his tour of wandering the earth and he raises the first question before God. The second question is asked on earth, originally by Job's wife, who is really just asking the question that Job's mind is already struggling with. Job suffers and his friends come to console him and through his outcry, he delves into this second question. Job doesn't know what has transpired in heaven. He doesn't know that this is happening because of a bet. He doesn't know that Hasatan is asking the first question and that his suffering has been derived from it. He only knows that he's suffering and that he's innocent. So he asks the second question. So here they are. The first question is, would Job continue to have faith in God if things weren't going his way? This is the question raised in heaven. The second question is, Job has always been faithful, so why is he suffering? This is the question raised on earth. And isn't it interesting that both questions are really just two sides of the same coin, two facets of a single impending question. And you know, it's that central question that the book of Job is really about. And that question is, is there such a thing as faith for nothing? You know what? We'll come back to that one. Let's talk about that first question. In the heavenly scenes, Yahweh brags about Job, right? Hasatan appears before him and says he's been roaming the earth. And then Yahweh brags about Job. In verse 8, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Oh, sure, says the Satan. Sure he is. Who wouldn't be in his situation, right? Verse 9 to 10. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. He's basically saying, of course he has faith. You give him everything he wants. But then he says, if you stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. In other words, the Satan says, I bet if you take away his stuff, he'll turn on you. This is the first question. The Satan questions the motives of Job. Job, he says, is faithful to God because God has placed a hedge around him. God has blessed Job and everything he touches, so naturally Job is faithful. He's been richly blessed, but if he weren't. Now the question's out there. The question's about Job's response to God. Would Job be faithful if God did not protect him and bless him? That's pretty deep, right? And it appears to be an indictment of Job's motives, right? Job's faith, says the Satan, is simply a matter of response. God blesses Job, and Job responds in faith. As long as Job is blessed, he'll be faithful. Ah, but withhold the blessing, even give him some hardship, 
and his faith will evaporate. But that's not just an indictment of Job's faith. It's very important to understand. This is not an accusation just against Job. This is an accusation against humanity. Isn't the faith of a human being merely a loving response to the love of God? Now be careful. This is a very dangerous question to ask out loud. Once the Satanist posed it to God regarding Job, he has forced me to ask it about myself. Am I faithful to God in the degree to which I muster any faith at all simply because of the blessings God has bestowed on me? Or, or maybe even worse, do I expect something from God on account of my faith? Now, that's the real dilemma. Don't I come to church expecting something from God? Don't I give my offering expecting something from God? In fact, isn't everything I do based on my expectation of reward? Haven't you heard folks in church talk about their eternal reward? What does the word reward mean? Doesn't it mean that we expect to earn something for our performance? Don't we actually mean that if we're good enough during our lives, we'll get something for it? I know we all agree that salvation is not based on works, right? God gives it freely, but let's be honest. Don't we all think, at least to some degree, that God will bless those who are faithful to him? Don't we expect something from him? In fact, isn't that why suffering is such a problem? Isn't that really why it's so hard to understand? The idea of our reward is okay until someone is really suffering and suffering in a way they don't deserve. And that's when it starts to be a problem. Now let's look at the second question. Why is faithful Job suffering? It's asked first by Job's wife. In 2.9 she says, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. And later Job asks it himself as he cries out to God. He doesn't, he doesn't understand why he's suffering. His friends offer all kinds of advice to him in a series of speeches we'll look at later. And their advice embodies the primary theological logic of Job's day, which is the theology of retribution. It's a theology of punishment and reward. The good are rewarded and the bad are punished. We all know that's the right way, right? This is how things are supposed to work. And deep down, most of us expect that from God. Maybe our rewards are said to be spiritual, but the fact remains that we expect certain responses from God, either in this life or the next. And when unusual suffering comes to an innocent person, we brush up against the unfathomable. Either God is evil or God is powerless. Because in the theology of retribution, there is no third option. If God punishes the wicked and rewards the good, then the suffering of the innocent leaves us in a really bad place. This is the question raised by Job's wife. Do you still hang on to your integrity? Can you remain faithful to God in light of this new and startling development that throws your theology of retribution right out the window? Or should you rather curse God even if it results in your death? Job spends many chapters disputing with his friends who are clinging to this theology since it's all they know. And since it's all they know, the answer must be, can only be, that Job has sinned and hidden his sin since God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. Job must be wicked for God to punish him in this way. Period. Pat answer. Carved in stone. For Job, who knows that's not the case, this theology no longer works, and his friends do not comfort him. He still has questions, and he wants answers. All right, so where does this leave us? I mean, we're right back where we started, right? The real question the, the question that the other two questions are asking, is there such a thing as faith for nothing? You see, the question is this, can we have faith in God completely and totally apart from any expectation of reward or punishment? Faith for nothing. 
Well, we choose to believe in God regardless of whether or not things go well for us, just because he's God. This entire discussion calls me back to the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, right? Now, I don't know a lot of people who love this parable. It's difficult. Um, It's in Matthew 20. It's a story of the owner of a vineyard who hires some folks to work out in his fields, and they show up early and they work all day. He promises them a certain wage, and out they go, right? All day long, new workers show up, right? They show up mid-morning, some show up in the middle of the day, some show up in the middle of the afternoon, some show up at the end of the day, and he sends them out to, to work. And at the end of the day, the owner calls all the workers together and pays them all a full day's wages. Now, of course, the ones who had worked all day were a little miffed that they were paid the same amount as the ones who only worked a short time. They complained. And I want to read you the owner's response. This is Matthew 20, verses 13 to 15. He answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take it and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be angry because I am kind? Now, this parable always bothers me because it isn't fair. The ones who worked all day were paid the same amount as the ones who only worked a short time, and it's not fair. It isn't. Jesus tells us, that he's free to give his stuff to whomever he chooses. He says that no one was cheated and that everyone received what they agreed to work for, and that's all true, and it still isn't fair. So we're stuck with the startling possibility God might not be fair. And what I mean is he doesn't seem to be compelled to obey human measures of fairness, what we think of as fair. And this is what Job's discovering about God. It isn't fair. Job didn't deserve to suffer as he does. It's not fair. And yet the question remains, can he still have faith in God? Faith for nothing. Is his faith in God dependent on God's fairness? Or does he have faith in God because God is God, regardless of how he perceives his fairness? By the way, just as a quick aside, I don't want a fair God. I want a God who gives grace. I definitely don't want a God who gives me what I deserve. Praise Jesus that he gives us grace instead. Amen. All right, let's wrap this up. We have a lot to talk about over the rest of this book. We need to examine this idea of fairness. We need to look at Job's friends and what they suggest that he do. We need to examine Job's desire to put God on trial, which is what he calls for for 24 chapters. We need to hear God's response to Job, which is fabulous. But for now, as we're getting started, we just need to hear this question. We need to ponder this question. We need to be willing to ask it of ourselves and face it honestly. Is our faith in God dependent on a specific response from God? Or can we have faith for nothing? Can we believe in God and trust God simply for who he is and not for what we get out of it? The book of Job centers on this question. Can we believe in God because God is real and God is God? Can we believe in God because he's king of the universe? Is it possible for human beings to have faith in God because God just is, right? That's what he told Moses from the bush. I am. I just am. I alone exist of myself and everything else derives its life from me. Can we have faith in God for no other reason than that? Is it possible? And believing in God because he is, should we not obey him? If he is God, And if we believe in him, should we not simply do what he commands? Should that obedience be based merely on the fact of his existence and not on any reward we expect to receive from him? See, this is big stuff. 
When Jesus was asked by a teacher of the law what the greatest commandment was, he answered that it was to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind, like Luke 10, 27. But Jesus never put a condition on that, right? He never said, love God as long as he does your stuff, right? From the beginning, God has told us that he is and that he loves us and that we should love him. And can we do that without putting any conditions on him? Is it possible for a human being to have faith for nothing? That's the question we're going to deal with. All right, let's pray. And remember, as always, keep your eyes and your mind on what you're doing. If you're driving, keep driving. If you're watching the kids, keep watching the kids. Just let your hearts pray with me right now. Father, we thank you so much for meeting us where we're at, especially meeting us in these struggles of faith, these questions that we have. Lord, we expect from you things should go my way. Things should be good at work. We may not say it, but sometimes we act like it and sometimes we treat, we treat you like it. Lord, this book you've given us, this book of Job, is challenging some of that. It's pointing out that you're God and we need to treat you like God and not like our genie. So I pray that as we go through the study, you'll stir these thoughts up in us and help us to struggle with them. Help us to find truth and our faith in you. Faith that the end of the day you bet on we praise you for that in jesus name we pray amen okay thanks for being with me we'll uh we'll pick this up in the next episode and it's not gonna get easier until then peace <laughs>